All right. Uh, good morning or evening or whatever. Uh, this is ICU Doc Talk with um, ICU Doctor. Um, we are today. Let's talk about uh, illicit drugs and the medical complications that they have, and with possible withdrawals from them, and what, what I see with them. Uh, this is a you know trigger warning. Of, I'm talking about illicit drugs. I'm talking about marijuana, methamphetamine, cocaine, heroin, <clears throat> opiates. And stuff like that. Uh, I've treated many, many patients that have had substance use disorder with a lot of these things. I will be talking about substance use disorder a little bit, but I'm mostly going to be talking about the medical management of, of patients like this. So, um, it, if you feel like this is not this is something that may trigger you with one way or the other, uh, maybe maybe do not listen this week. Uh, but anyway, here we go. Let's let's do it. I'm first, going to be talking about cannabis, marijuana. <clears throat> it is the third most commonly used like psychoactive substance in the world, which is after alcohol and tobacco. Um, you know, it causes euphoria and it's also a set of properties. It has analgesic properties as well, meaning it can treat pain. <clears throat> it can. Um, and it, and obviously the active drug is THC, which, uh, um, you know, varies with potency of how, how you, you know, whether it's smoked or eaten or, or whatever. Now, when, when patients, when, uh, when I have a patient who actively uses marijuana, they use it today, they use it this morning, something like that, you know, how does it affect things? It, it doesn't affect medical management as much as you may believe it does. So I think I should, let me back up. Number one, I don't care when I have a patient who does, does, I, I'm going to probably accidentally say things in, in sensitive ways of the course of this podcast. So I apologize up front. I was about to say does drugs, which is a very you know dumb way of saying things. Uh, but someone who uses marijuana, um, I don't care if someone uses illicit drugs. It doesn't like as a I, I, I truly do not have moral judgment about patient. You know, when I have a patient and they're like, oh, yeah, I did methamphetamine yesterday. I promise you, whoever's listening to this, I don't I do not judge that person uh, because my perspective is, uh, you know, if someone has an addic- addiction is a disease is a medical disease and addictions get to this point. I mean, by definition, they're not out there outside that, that person's control. Now, maybe they made poor decisions leading up to addiction. Everybody makes poor decisions. We all make bad decisions. And then some people, we have genetic dispositions that lend more to, to addiction. Someone may, you know, do, do some sort of illicit drug and then get away scot-free without an addiction. And then the next person, they, they experimented with it like the first person, and then they have an addiction for the rest of their life. And it's, it's genetic proclivity. And that person who doesn't have the addiction, they just they just won the genetic lottery. You know, they were able to experiment with drugs in high school or college or whatever, and they got away with it, right? That's outside of people's control. So I do not place moral judgment on people that, that have substance use disorder and that are addicted to substances like this. I do not. So when I have a patient and I'm like, oh, yeah, doctor, I did this, I, I don't care. Most people in medical professions don't. Uh, maybe, may I, you know what? Maybe I'll back that up. I don't know. Maybe people do. Maybe people don't. But it doesn't, it, it should not affect their care. Maybe it does in some places. And that's, you know, that, that's not right. But for one thing, I don't care. Be honest, because it really, really matters that your healthcare team knows if you're, if you are doing illicit drugs, like something as, you know, as something that may not, you may not think is a big deal, like marijuana, you need to tell us. So <clears throat> with marijuana, so if someone is actively using it as anesthesiologist or critical care, um, number one, I don't care. It's not a moral judgment, but I need to know. Uh, because it, it, it does increase your tolerance for anesthetics. It definitely does. It definitely does. So if I have like a, you know, a 55 year old guy and rather than giving like 150 milligrams of propofol to, it took 300 to get get that guy to sleep. That guy's probably doing some recreational, um, drug use that, you know, he didn't tell me about, uh, because no one should really take that much, even if they're a redhead, right. Or even if they're, they're on the heavier side, 
no one should take like that much at that age group, you know? So I, it, it often it coincides with that. So we need to know, mostly I need, want to know about your marijuana use because I need to give you more anesthetic. You want to have the appropriate anesthetic to treat your, to make sure you're sedated and to treat your pain. Like, we, you, you know, we need to know these things. I also, you know, want to know if you're on cannabinoids, like, uh, you know, other medications that are cannabinoids, like Marinol, things like that, so that we can continue to give you those medications. You know, if someone has cancer and they're on chemo and they're taking stuff like that. So, you know, we, we need to know those things. So withdrawal from, from cannabis, it's usually manifested by like a constellation of signs. And it usually happens within one week after abrupt reduction or like cessation of a heavy and pro prolonged use. <clears throat> the symptoms are, are they, they range from really, really mild to severe. And the withdrawal has, it has a lot of significance when the symptoms are severe enough to, severe to be like distressing to a patient when they interfere with like daily activities, your, your you know, activities of daily living. Sleep disturbance is also a big issue uh, with, with cannabis withdrawal. Now withdrawal from cannabis, it's not generally associated with like significant, you know, uh, vital changes like cardiovascular changes or um, something that might affect your, your nervous system like, uh, like other illicit drugs that I'm gonna talk about. Now there are synthetic cannabinoids and abrupt cessation of those, they can lead to more physiological withdrawal symptoms like um, hyperactivity of, of your autonomic nervous system. Like you can get, you know, high heart rate or, or blood pressure. You can have, um, you know, a lot of sweating, uh, even seizure and, and altered mental status. I haven't seen this. That, that, that seems like a very r rare withdrawal symptom from, from synthetic cannabinoids. And, and the reason I haven't seen it is, is if someone is on synthetic cannabinoids, they, you know, we usually continue those when someone is in an inpatient. All right, that's enough about marijuana. Honestly, it doesn't come across, uh, you know, withdrawal uh, symptoms from that. It doesn't come across my in my clinical practice very often. Um, so let's move on to opiates. So withdrawal from opiates is a, obviously a big, big deal. Now, it's not typically life-threatening uh, withdrawal. So there are some illicit drugs that are life-threatening if you withdraw from them. But opiates are typically not life-threatening. Now, people that are withdrawing from opiates, they probably feel like they're, it's life-threatening and that they're, they're dying because it, it's unbelievably unpleasant for, for these you know, poor people. Uh, but it's not life-threatening. The typical signs and symptoms of withdrawal from opiates are, of course, craving for it, anxiety, restlessness, GI, distress, diarrhea, sweating, high heart rate, um, high blood pressure. And then untreated withdrawal usually results in relapse to use opiates. One thing to keep in mind is that patients with opiate use disorders, they have they usually have higher rates of other substance use disorders, especially nicotine. It's up to 85% concomitant use. Um, and they also have higher rates of mental uh, health disorders, up to 70%, especially major depression, panic, anxiety, um, generalized anxiety disorders, PTSD, and uh, like antisocial personality disorder. So it's not just an isolated thing. This is a, it's a, you know, patients are complex and they, they, they have complex reasons for their behavior. Now, if someone is trying to go through opiate withdrawal on their own, like, you know, outside of a hospital setting, they're, they're likely going to relapse, like I, like I mentioned. So there is medically supervised opiate withdrawal. Well, that's what detoxification is, you know, when, when you hear it, what is detoxification? And that typically involves giving medications that reduce the severity of the withdrawal symptoms um, when someone stops. The main medications that are used with treatment of withdrawal symptoms are opiate and agonists, right? Agonists is a different drug that hits that same receptor, right? And the typical ones we use are like methadone, 
and uh, buprenorphine, which is a partial agonist. There's also alpha-2 adrenergic agonists. I won't get too much into that, but um, uh, like medications such as clonidine. There's a lot of adjunct therapies that, that can be used for opiate withdrawal symptoms. Now, I'm not an expert in substance use disorder and, and, and detoxification, things like that, so I don't want to explore too much into that because I don't want to say the wrong things. I, my point is I take care of patients, whether they have, um, you know, they've been in a car accident and they were using heroin that day, or they've been clean for four years and they're on methadone, right? I, I, I take care of all types of patients in the operating room doing anesthesiology or in the ICU if they're critically ill, right? Just because someone is, is, has substance use disorder, they get the same, I know I'm stating the obvious, they get the same issues that anybody else has and they need to be in a hospital for, for many other reasons, not just because of you know, opiate withdrawal use. So one of the main principles is if someone is on methadone, you keep them on methadone you ensure that they took it that day. So if I have a patient that I know is on methadone, I'm like, you know, did you take your methadone today? Usually they have, right? They're religious about it because it's, it's helping them. Um, it's, it's providing that, it's, it's that got that nice sustained opiate release into their bloodstream. It's helping keep their cravings at bay. It's, it's right. Methadone can literally provide support for someone overnight to keep, keep their withdrawals at bay, get them out of unsafe situations. And, and it helps them move towards, towards recovery. So I make sure that they've received it that day. If they haven't, I give it to them. Um, if, you know, if they weren't able to get it, whatever, I will give them methadone during the operation, before an operation. I will make sure they get methadone after the operation uh, or whatever it is. If they're on OxyContin, which is, you know, sustained release, which is typically not used for withdrawal symptoms, I, and I'm not encouraging that, but, uh, you know, people can be on that. Um, they can be on that if they have cancer pain or something like that. The point is do not precipitate withdrawal symptoms with, with a patient that is hospitalized. Give them what they need in an inpatient setting. I usually take care of patients that are have high acuity needs, like they're in the operating room or the ICU, right? So I make sure they are getting what they need. It is not my job and my role to fix where someone is at with, with their substance use disorder. I am, it is my job to get them safely through whatever it is they need and to not precipitate withdrawal symptoms. And then maybe to set them up with chemical dependency, um, uh, like counselors and you know detoxification program, if it's what they desire on their way out of the hospital, to set them up with those experts. Now, if someone is on something like Suboxone, which that's what it's called in the United States, uh, that's the brand name, which is buprenorphine and naloxone, right? It's a partial agonist and a full antagonist of the opiate receptor that helps with uh, substance use disorder. It helps you to, to it helps give, give cravings. And the reason it's compounded that way, it, it, you can only take it as a pill. If someone tries to crush it up and put it in the bloodstream, the naloxone will, will counteract the buprenorphine and it won't be effective so it discourages people to inject it because it won't it won't give the, it won't do anything for they won't feel anything they won't feel any like you know opiate satisfa uh, satisfaction anyway so if someone is on so, something like suboxone preoperatively and they, they need acute surgery they're going to have surgery well they're going to have acute surgical pain right after the procedure they're going to have acute surgical pain so if they're on suboxone, which is buprenorphine naloxone, they have a partial, partial agonist going on in their body, an uh, opiate agonist. What that means is if I, try to give, it's gonna, if I try to give them something like hydromorphone or fentanyl, something that's a full agonist, it's not going to be as effective because the buprenorphine is blocking the, 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 the full agonist medications. So they may have pain, right, that, that uncontrolled pain after their surgery from acute surgical pain. So in my opinion, the best practice is to, if someone is on something like Suboxone before surgery, the best practice is to transition them to a full agonist like seven days before, something like that. Again, I'm not a pain expert, but this is my opinion. Transition to something like oxycodone so that they have that in their system 
and then they go to surgery, and now they won't have that partial agonist that uh, may make it that may precipitate a pain crisis. All right, I know there's a lot more to say about opiates and stuff, and I'm moving kind of fast, um, but I'm going to move on to alcohol. And I just want to take a step back and just I, I want you to consider how how bizarre it is that alcohol is a is legal is a legal drug that you know in the united states you can get when you're 21 legally or in other states you can get possibly or other countries you can get possibly when you're younger and it's legal and it is so incredibly dangerous for the human body it is so incredibly dangerous on public health and then you have something like marijuana which traditionally has been illegal for so long and has been used and weaponized um, to criminalize large swaths of people that are usually non-white people um, in the United States and to create a carceral state that's completely unjust. It's just, this is, it's just, just step back and think about how bizarre, there's a, there's a lot of bizarre things about our society, many, right? <laughs> American society and Western society and global society, right? I mean, it, there's a lot of bizarre things everywhere, but this is, this is truly one of those things that's just like, why would you not legalize marijuana? Why would you not decriminalize a bunch of people when you have this insane double standard. Think about this, okay? It's just, like, do you understand how bizarre it would be to say to someone, hey, do you wanna, hey, we're getting together, we got happy hour, uh, we're all gonna, you know, smoke a couple bowls, um, come join us for happy hour. Do you know how, that is not socially acceptable. But, but it is socially acceptable to be like, let's go up, meet up for drinks. When, when alcohol is so much worse for your body and so much worse for society. The, the stigmatization of marijuana is just, it's it's insane it's insane marijuana is so it's it, it's so much more harm does so much less harm to the human body and, and less social impact than alcohol i just want you to i know i'm not i know it's not that profound it's not, I'm not the first person to make this observation but that that is just something so incredibly bizarre about our society anyway so let's talk about alcohol which is a drug and it's absolutely terrible for your body and no amount of it is good for your body i just want to dispel that myth right now right like people are like, oh, wine, I drink a glass of wine, blah, 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 for heart health. Well, yeah, there's a substance in wine that may be good for heart health, but it's not the alcohol in wine. You don't Go drink non-alcoholic wine if you want that benefit, right? Don't use that as, as an excuse. Alcohol is not good for your body. No amount of alcohol is good for your body. Um, it's, uh, your liver has to process that, that alcohol. It, it just, it, it's not good. It's not good. Um, and, you know, if, if you're someone who no, never mind. I don't want to get I don't want to get into too much in giving it like advice about about stuff like this. But just just know that no amount of alcohol is good for your body. The less alcohol you can drink, the, the better for your your long term term health and and longevity. Um, and and just to put it out there, I do not drink alcohol. I, I do not drink it. I don't drink a drop of alcohol. I know I'm weird. I, I don't do any illicit drugs or anything. I drink caffeine. That's my drug, and it's amazing. Uh, anyway, let's okay. Let's get on to this. So when I'm when I ask a patient. Uh, so the reason we, uh, you know, do you drink alcohol? How much do you drink? Again, it's not a moral judgment. We need to know, uh, expect, especially with alcohol, because withdrawal from alcohol is deadly. It can be deadly. It can cause seizures and you can die. Um, so I, again, withdrawal from opiates is not deadly. Withdrawal from alcohol absolutely can be deadly and people can die from withdrawal of, of alcohol. So we, we need to know. Um, and you know, people, people, if they say, no, I don't drink at all, then it's like, okay. Some people will be like, oh, yeah, I drink, you know, you know, a gallon of vodka a day. And they'll say that like it's just nothing. And you're like, oh, okay. That's very, that, that person needs alcohol or benzos in their body. So benzodiazepines hit the same receptors as alcohol. 
Um, and that's why I withdraw from benzos. I'm going to be discussing kind of benzos in here as well. Benzodiazepines, you know, like uh, clonazepam, lorazepam, midazolam, Xanax, which is alprazolam. These are all these are benzodiazepines. They hit the same receptors as alcohol. That's why the, the treatment for alcohol withdrawals is benzos. That's what we give to someone in the inpatient setting when they're going to withdraw, withdraw from alcohol. And you must treat them with benzos. It's, it's not just to like, oh, we don't want them to have a bad time withdrawing from alcohol. You, you have to treat them. They can die. They can have seizures and die if you do not treat their alcohol withdrawals. And people usually drink more than they report. That's not across the board. And I don't make that judgment every time. But people are, they usually, if someone's like, here's the thing. If someone says, oh, I drink on the weekends, uh, that's, you know, okay, okay, cool. If someone says, uh, I, I drink, um, you know, a couple beers a day, that's someone that starts to pique my interest being like, this is someone who may withdraw from alcohol and it may be a danger to their health. So again, it's not a judgment I'm making. So if someone says, oh, you know, I just drink a little bit on the weekend, I don't, I'm not that suspicious that that person's going to have withdrawal bad seizures and, and die. But if someone says I drink a couple of beers a day, my suspicion is raised that this person likely may be an, uh, an alcoholic, which I know that term has bad connotations. Again, I'm sorry if I'm offending people with my terminology. I, I just can't use constant. It, it's hard to constantly be aware of my language all the time, which is not an excuse. But I, anyway, my apologies up front. But if someone says I'm drinking alcohol, I drink a couple of beers a day, I'm like, hmm, you know, my, my, I'm alerted that this patient maybe have withdrawal symptoms as they're admitted to the hospital and they may need benzos they may they that we may need to monitor that because it could be dangerous to their health if they say they're drinking a couple beers a day they they're probably underestimating and underreporting what they drink they, they probably drink more a day if someone is drinking alcohol every single day they're at danger of having withdrawal problems so you know there are mild withdrawal symptoms insomnia being tremulous shaky anxiety headache uh you know, having heart palpitations or being sweaty. Those are mild symptoms. The severe symptoms are withdrawal seizures. So there's withdrawal seizures. Are, they're, they, they can be generalized tonic-clonic convulsions that we, they, that we talk about. And they can happen anywhere from 12 to 48 hours after the last alcoholic drink. But sometimes they can occur after a few hours, um, as, as, as few as two hours after abstinence. That's why we always ask when, uh, when someone, you know, has alcohol substance use disorder, uh, you know, we'll ask, when is the last drink? When is the last time you had your drink? And if you are someone who has an, has has problems, substance use disorder with alcohol, be honest. Be like, I my last drink was at 6 p.m. Uh, we need to know because we need to start timing. Okay, wh what when is the danger of them having seizures? And again, seizures usually occur with patients with a long history of chronic alcoholism. So as I said, we usually treat these with benzodiazepines. Phenobarbital can also be an effective treatment, which is a barbiturate. Um, and, and then if someone's withdrawal seizures are so bad, sometimes we put them in a medically induced coma. Propofol also can treat, um, uh, prevent withdrawal seizures. If someone, so sometimes someone can be so, they can be intubated and sedated uh, for a different reason, and then they have alcohol issues. So like if someone has been drinking, you know, a gallon of vodka every day and they get in a car accident for whatever reason, they come in and they're intubated, they, they have traumatic injuries to their body, whatever, maybe they had a brain bleed, et cetera, et cetera and they're intubated you know and sedated they can go on withdrawal so you, but propofol will keep that at bay but once you start waking it up they can be in alcohol withdrawal it's something you have you have you must be aware of uh, with a patient like this and something you should be suspicious of if things aren't adding up that maybe they're in withdrawal from alcohol so with alcohol withdrawal there's something called delirium tremens which is about five percent of patients who undergo withdrawal they suffer from this dt and it's defined by hallucinations 
disorientation, tachycardia, hypertension, hyperthermia, agitation, sweating, and in the setting of you know, reduction or absence from alcohol. The DTs, as I said, they can begin between 48 and 96 hours after the last drink, and, and, they, um, and it can last up to five days. DT, delirium tremens, and alcohol-like hallucinations are not synonymous. The symptoms that occur a few hours after the cessation of drinking, even if they're severe, are usually not manifestations of DT. Now, the risk factors for DT are obviously a history of sustained drinking, a history of alcohol withdrawal seizures, a history of DT, obviously, age greater than 30, the presence of other illnesses, um, and also the presence of significant alcohol withdrawal in the presence of an elevated blood alcohol concentration. So if someone has a bunch of, their blood is saturated with alcohol and they're withdrawing, that's a big risk factor that they're going to have DTs and, and seizures. When DT is, DTs are identified and appropriate management is given, the mortality from it is less than 5%. Now, there's a, a protocol that's used universally in the United States. I don't know about globally. It's called the CEWA protocol. It stands for Clinical Institute Withdrawal Assessment for Alcohol. And this is a bedside uh, checklist that the nurse makes to give a, a, a numbered score to how severe someone's withdrawal. And there's usually a pharmacological protocol set up that if they, they score this many points, you give them you know, a benzodiazepine or, or phenobarbital, depending on the protocol. And I'm not going to comment on how much benzos to give and phenobarbital to give here. I'm not going to make those medical recommendations. That should be institution dependent. I don't want to cause unsafe practices because I'm being too vague, so I'm not going to talk about that at all. But the CIWA, it's usually based on are they having nausea and vomiting? Are they sweaty? Do they have anxiety? Do they have a headache? Do they have auditory hallucinations? Do they have visual hallucinations? Are they agitated? Do they have tactile disturbances? Do they have tremors? Are they not oriented? So the, the nurse, bedside nurse, makes a score of these. So a severe withdrawal is like greater than 20. Anyway, you can look up the protocol. It's called the CIWA protocol, uh, C-I-W-A. It's extremely, extremely important and well-validated tool. All right, moving on. Let's talk about methamphetamine. Um, so it's what we call sympathomimetic, um, it, it, which, it, which stimulates the sympathetic system or, or stimulates your fight-or-flight response. Um, it's, it's, it can have, like, anorexic effects, euphoric effects, hallucinogenic effects. So that's why it's a, disease, uh, uh, a drug of um, abuse is because it causes, you know, euphoria and, and maybe hallucinogenic effects. But it's also methamphetamines are used clinically for treatment of attention deficit disorder with hyperactivity. Um, sometimes it can be used for short-term obesity treatment, which is not something I'm knowledgeable about. I don't know why we use it. I don't prescribe it for that, so I, I don't, don't you know, come at me for that. Um, and it's also can be used off-label treatment for um, uh, narcolepsy. Recre recreational use of methamphetamines and other amphetamine-derived stimulants is an epidemic in the United States, um, also in Southern Asia, the Philippines, Japan. Um, after cannabis, it's the most widely abused illicit drug worldwide. About 5% of the United States population has used methamphetamine in their lifetime, with an estimated 500,000 people using the drug in, in any given month. So, you know, chronic methamphetamine uh, uh, substance use users, they're usually malnourished, they're agitated, um, they usually have signs of, like, hypervigilance. Um, that can be even just mildly intoxicated patients. Lots, lots of changes in sleep patterns, severe mood changes, unpredictable behavior are very common. They can have excoriations or, or like track marks on their skin, um, and that's really suggestive of prolonged intravenous use. They can have profound sweating, diaphoresis. Um, anyway, they, there is definitely, I know it sounds bad, but there is a look of methamphetamine abusers. So methamphetamine 
uh, abusers, they usually, you know, they can have, as I said, they, they, they can have extreme agitation and, and they have deranged vital signs. They can have, they usually have a dose dependent variation to blood pressure. They can have, they can be hyperthermic with, you know, high blood pressure, um, elevations in their heart rate. And at the higher doses generally seen in like acute intoxication, they can have that sympathomimetic stimulation or that fight or flight re response that can be dramatic, a dramatic increase in heart rate, blood pressure, respiratory rate. Again, elevated temperature is very common. Um, and they can have arrhythmias, tachyarrhythmias, uh, associated with severe intoxication. Lots of patients can have heart failure, methamphetamine-induced cardiomyopathy, which, which can happen. This, it's a disease that really just it really destroys the body in very significant ways. So the general approach to someone with you know, acute intoxication of methamphetamine is they can be so agitated, it can, they can pose a danger to themselves, other patients, and medical staff. And I've seen this many, many times. So there, you, you have to have control of violent behavior. So it's critical. Um, they must be treated. Acute intoxication must be treated usually with intravenous benzodiazepines like lorazepam, uh, midazolam. So, uh, uh, sometimes you have to give this intramuscularly because you can't even give an IV in these patients. They're, such, they're in such danger to themselves, they won't allow you to put an IV in. So you have to come along and put, you know, intramuscular uh, medication, you know, uh, like a, you just put, put a needle in their muscle and put it, inject the drug and get out of there real quick while security guards hold them down. I've done it. I've definitely done it um, many times. Oftentimes, severely intoxicated patients require, they need to be intubated. They need to be out and intubated. Sometimes they've hurt themselves so badly, you need to scan them for, for traumatic injuries. And you can't do that because they're so agitated uh, that you have to sedate them, intubate them, put them in a bleed tube, send them to a scanner, get, get the workup done. You have to, you, I mean, oftentimes you have to chemically control these patients for their own good, um, for their own safety to even do a diagnostic workup on them to see if there's anything else going on. Because it's not just that they can have methamphetamine-induced toxicity, that they can have other things going on, like tra uh, traumatic injuries to their body that can be very harmful if they're not recognized and treated. Now, acute withdrawal leads to, like, crazy derangements in neurochemistry. Uh, and that can lead to compulsive and uncontrolled drug intake um, with their addiction. Particularly after heavy or prolonged use, abrupt discontinuation of it of methamphetamine can cause a withdrawal syndrome. Um, symptoms may develop within hours. They typically pe peak within one to two days and most often decrease within about two weeks. During the acute withdrawal phase, the signs and symptoms are like dysphoria, just feeling awful, fatigue, sleeping a lot, vivid dreams, sometimes not sleeping, insomnia, agitation, anxiety, drug craving, and increased appetite. It can be similar to acute intoxication, but maybe not as, uh, as severe. And then treatments for acute withdrawal include, again, benzos, antidepressants, antipsychotics, um, naltrexone, and then, of course, behavioral therapy. And again, this is not my field. Uh, I'm not a psychiatrist. I'm not a substance use uh, expert. Um, so I don't want to comment too, too much on treating methamphetamine uh, use. But it is, a, it is a very terrible disease, methamphetamine addiction, um, that systematically destroys someone's mind and body. So the last illicit drug I'm going to talk about today is cocaine, <clears throat> which is a ester alkaloid. It's found in uh, you know, the coca plant, which is a bush that grows in the Andes Mountains. It can lead to, obviously, addiction and a lot of adverse physical effects. It can lead to stroke and cardiac arrest. It's a very dangerous drug. So in the, you know, according to an <clears throat> annual world report that I'm looking at, cocaine is estimated to have been used by 20 million people worldwide 
or about 0.4% of the global population aged 15 to 64. Its use is most prevalent in North and South America, Western and Central Europe. Cocaine use and its disorder represent a really significant health burden. Cocaine overdose is like a less common cause of mortality than the other medications I'm talking about. Of, of, of about 16,000 overdose deaths involving cocaine in the United States in 2019, two-thirds also involve synthetic opiates like fentanyl. Again, like a lot of drugs, there's a comorbidity with cocaine use and other psychiatric disorders like anxiety, depression, bipolarism, um, and schizophrenia. So withdrawal from cocaine, you know, of a chronic user is usually associated with things like depression, anxiety, fatigue, can't concentrate, something called anhedonia, which is like not enjoying things that you usually enjoy. Of course, increased cocaine cravings, increased appetite, sleep disturbances, and you know, like insomnia or hypersomnia and disturbing dreams. As opposed to the other drugs I've discussed, the physical signs of cocaine withdrawal are usually minor and they actually don't really require treatment. Um, usually it's like nonspecific musculoskeletal pain, chills, uh, bradycardia, you know, a low heart rate um, are kind of the signs of withdrawal. Complications associated with using cocaine are, you know, acute intoxication or seizure. That can occur after like a large dose of cocaine and individuals with, with that have a background with seizure as well. Stroke, you can, people can get stroke from acute intoxication. Um, some other movement disorders, headaches, um, are also things that can happen. There's psychiatric effects like suicidal ideation and cocaine-induced psychosis, uh, which can obviously have all sorts of problems. Hypertension, um, you know, high, high blood pressure, high heart rate. And then you can other get, you can get, there's others, basically co acute intoxication of cocaine can affect all, all organ systems of your body in, in different ways. All right, I think I'm going to just wrap up my discussion about that. Let's let's move on to the book of the week here. All right, I'm going to talk about a book that I very much disliked, and I pr I knew that I probably would before I read it, but uh, and I'm going to explain very specifically why I did not like this book. Uh, this book is called Woke Inc. Inside Corporate America's Social Justice Scam by Vivek Ramaswamy. Ramaswamy is a I don't know he's like a CEO of pharmaceutical industry. And he wrote this book where he's honestly, to sum it up, he's trying to rebrand corruption and repurpose it as woke, wokeism. I know there's a lot of, uh, as I use the word woke, I want to be very specific here. I know that, you know, wokeism has many different connotations at this point. It's been co-opted uh, and, and weaponized uh, as a pejorative also. You know, what probably should have started out as like a civil rights movement, wokeism has become this whole thing. And it's a big ball of wax that I'm not going to get into. Um, but I'm, I'm using the word in a specific way here as I talk about this review, and it's mostly in the term that woke, that the wokeism and woke has been co-opted by corporations to, you know, and exploited by corporations to, um, in, in marketing campaigns to basically pander to, you know, liberal, liberal-minded people to make money, right? And that's, that's the how I'm using it here. So please, you know, forgive me if that may be offensive the way I'm using it. Basically, this author is trying to rebrand corporate corruption. Um, so it's an interesting perspective from this guy. He offers an unabashed tirade against state and corporate collusion, which is something I love to <laughs> complain about, um, with some very accurate insights, while he also seriously conflates concepts to mold into this grand polemic about what he perceives wokeism to entail. A big part of the book is the debate be between the virtues of stakeholder capitalism and shareholder capitalism. Stakeholder capitalism asserts the, that corporations should operate with all stakeholder interests, including shareholders, customers, and the greater public good. 
shareholder capitalism is that all interests and goals should be entirely devoted to boosting shareholder profits, as it is the fiduciary uh, you know, duty of the managerial class to do so. The author, our author argues that stakeholder capitalism lends to corporations being involved in social causes and making themselves the unwanted stewards of advancing social change. Since they are not elected and only care about corporate self-interest, this makes them wholly unqualified to be involved in philanthropy, which is a reasonable conclusion. Such causes inevitably turn into a form of like cultural authoritarianism, paying lip service while paradoxically destroying cultures, people, and wealth, both domestic and abroad. And I agree with this point. Many examples abound in the book from like Google and Apple ignoring human rights violations in Xinjiang, you know, China, while having you know, a little BLM logo on their website, right? It's total, absolute hypocrisy. And this stuff is all over the place, and it's also incredibly obvious to many, many people. This isn't like a profound point that the author thinks is as profound as he thinks it is. Like, he's not teaching you anything. It's obvious, right? He really beats a dead horse about a phenomenon that is really, really obvious um, about corporate motivations. And the author clearly endorses shareholder capitalism and valorizes the fiduciary duty of what he considers an increasing, increasingly belligerent managerial class that they have to their shareholders. Both public and private, the author scolds the managerial class for trying to seize both state and corporate power from the people and the shareholders, respectively. He argues that shareholder capitalism ensures that corporations stay in their lane and not take up social causes and not deceive the public, and uh, you know, but profiting from that. And I certainly think there are there's a case to be made for this, but there's a glaring problem with his logic. Why is shareholder capitalism actually good for society in its own right? He never talks about that. He never explains how increasing short-term profits for a small group of people is a win for the public good. The reason he doesn't explain it, maybe, is because it isn't good. Wealth concentration is bad. And it's bad for some of the very reasons he talks about, that wealth power spills over to public control. I very much agree with his assessment of Section 230, uh, and how our tech overlords are subverting democracy and the public good with Section 230. Um, his best point is that corporations shouldn't dictate what is moral and ethical, and they definitely do by their default power, and, and they leverage that into cultural liberalism. They, oh, excuse me, they lever, leverage it from cultural liberalism. They co-opt it. I agree with the author that, you know, quote, wokeism is becoming a monolithic dominant cultural force that demands conformity of thought in academia and in the workplace. It does, it, it truly does. This can be potentially harmful to productive discourse and it can erode the public good. I, I do think that there is merit in, in discussing that. I, I know I hate using this term as much as anyone else, but cancel culture, in my opinion, is a serious threat to free thought. People should not be fired or ostracized for voicing opinions and, or, or their thoughts and their views that are counter to mainstream liberal thought as long as those views aren't outright hateful or inciting to violence. That's just my opinion. Where the author overreaches is calling wokeism a literal religion, evoking words like blood sacrifice and worship. He, he, these are his words. Not only is this highly demeaning to people of actual religious faith, but it's completely inaccurate. A religion has codified doctrine, central authority, acolytes, and an underlying you know, spirituality. Wokeism may appear to have these things, but it's a, you know, like a bastardized version at best. He, the author is conflating religion with ethos. So <laughs> this is where things get problematic for me also. This guy has a love affair with what he perceives as capitalism and clearly endorses free market solutions. He goes as far as to argue that capitalism abolished the caste system in India. 
This kind of sweeping claim had me really raising my eyebrows early on in this book. As a CEO, it's very clear that his worldview has coalesced into believing that market solutions naturally, naturally address society's problems. I don't know if that's like self-delusion or just he's just naive. Either way, it's not accurate. And I want to dig in a little more here. The author blames the government for the 2008 financial crisis. Okay. In a sweeping accusation, he states that the housing, quote, policies in the 90s created too much liquidity in the housing market and caused an asset bubble that burst 15 years later. Others have made similar arguments that the FHA, the HOLC, and the Community Reinvestment Act, the CRA, have been used to provide easier public loans through government-sponsored enterprises called GSEs, like, you know, Franny and Freddie, that they fuel the housing bubble. I have some bad news for this author and people that think like this. You're wrong. You're demonstrably wrong. Here's the facts. The facts are that consumers who already had mortgages and who built up equity in their homes were more likely to be targeted by subprime loans than first-time home buyers. The crisis was caused by the rise of private predatory lending, not GSEs. FHA loans have never dominated the markets, ever. In fact, FHA loans had less market share, going from 14% to 3% from 2001 to 2007. Delinquency rates were also lower for those loans. GSE loans had delinquency rates of 6% during that time, while private loans were 28%. So how could public-backed loans fuel an asset bubble when they had a tiny portion of the market share? And of the defaulted loans, only 6% were the CRA, the, those, uh, the Community Reinvestment Act loans. It was clearly an unregulated mortgage-backed security market that led to the bubble. It seems like a business titan like this author would be able to understand this. Here's what he's doing with this book, okay? He's taking an age-old phenomenon, which is tokenism, and he's rebranding it as a new left-wing authoritarian Orwellian nightmare and then repurposing that as wokeism. That's what he's doing. Both companies and public entities use the politics of inclusion and tokenism to gain popular support and then go about doing whatever they want. We all know this. We all know this. But the author is trying to act like it's a new left-wing phenomenon that's subverting democracy. The point he's missing is that it is big business, monopolization, and state corporate collusion by any social and political means that is destroying democracy. It's not just the, quote, woke industrial complex, which is a term he uses. By compartmentalizing it as just a left-wing phenomenon, he has huge blinders on that become evident as the book goes on with mountains and mountains of confirmation bias. The author denies that systemic racism is a current American phenomenon. Why does he do this? It's because he's conflating individual racial prejudice with de facto racial apartheid. He clearly does not understand that the de jure racial government policies that are the literal foundation of the United States, from the Homestead Act to the GI Bill, the FHA, A2LC, New Deal programs, the drug war, three strikes felony charges, subprime lending, all of this, the United States has the bones of a literal racial apartheid. The author doesn't think for a minute that there is some residual systemic racial prejudice going on as a fallout from those race-selective policies. Come on, come on. That's ridiculous. Of course there is. The gall to deny that American institutions may have implicit race preference and to cast racism as a woke corporate charade is a sign of someone who hasn't done a lot of reading or thinking outside of his own echo chamber. So, okay, what's the impact of a book like this? There's two things. Confirmation to those that already think this way 
and obfuscation to those who are confused about how power actually operates in the United States. This book, and many like it that I've read, serve to deny real subjugation that is very much active in American society. It's ultimately the manifesto of a deluded rich man who wants you to know how much he and others like him have done for you. So I found the book worthwhile to read to understand why someone thinks this way, so I do recommend reading it, uh, but maybe get it from the library like I did and don't pay this guy. Anyway, I think I'm done. I don't think I can get to questions today. Um, so let me know how you like the podcast. Give a review. Um, share it with someone. You can email me at icudrecmo, E-C-M-O at uh, Gmail, icudrecmo at Gmail. I'm on TikTok. My handle is icudoctor. I'm on Instagram. You can DM me there, uh, icudoctor TikTok, my Instagram handle. And uh, thanks for listening. Appreciate it. Bye.